Welcome to the Property CEO Podcast, your inside track to the world of property with your hosts, Ian Child and Richie Clapson. Hello and welcome to the Property CEO Podcast. My name's Ian Child and I'm here with Richie Clapson. Hello everyone. And in this episode, we're going to be taking a look at tendering for a building contract, aren't we, Richie? I mean, that's right. We're going to be talking you uh, through the tendering process when you want to appoint a contractor and giving you some tips on how you can make that process as smooth as possible. Fantastic. Looking forward to that. So uh, what have you been up to uh, this week? Well, you know, I've been marvelling on how many property trainers it takes to redesign an office. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Would you be referring there to the ongoing changes to our, our new training suite? I have to say... I think they're coming on pretty well, if I'm honest. It's been a, well, it's been a good team effort, hasn't it? Uh, well, uh, I, mean, it, I mean, it's been a good example of how, uh, you know, you need a good blend of practical skills to make it all come together, in my opinion. You mean my practical skills and your practical skills? Uh, no, uh, no, no. You, I mean, you don't actually have any practical skills, <laughs> to be fair. Yeah. I mean my blend of practical skills combined with your focus on you know, superficial and irrelevant details uh, <laughs> <laughs> makes for a perfect combination of talents, really. Hold on a sec. What do you mean I've got no practical skills? Let, let, <gasps> let me state, for the record, that there yeah, are a number of items of furniture in my garage at home that were constructed by my own fair hand and... Which have stood the test of time? Well, I mean, that prompts the question, why they've been put in your garage for a long time and not in your house? Okay, there's a reason for that. Yeah, okay. (laughs) Which is presumably that uh, maybe your good lady didn't want the risk of sitting on them, leaning against them, or maybe putting any books or anything on them. No, don't be ridiculous. She, She just thought that they looked better in the garage. Okay, I mean, that may have been a bad example, but I still take exception to being called impractical. Okay, well, I thought you'd get all defensive, so I bought along some proof. What you got there? Well, I have two to-do lists for the day that we moved into the barn. You remember? Okay, one from you and one from me. Right, and and what exactly has that got to do with being practical? Okay, well, let's have a let's have a quick read through, shall we, and see who perhaps has a slightly more solid grasp on the practicalities. Right. Okay. Do your worst. Okay, then here's my list. Number one on my list was read the utility meters and take photos. Number Mm -hmm. two, check inventory and note any differences. Number three, locate stopcock for building. Number four, check alarm system. You get the picture? And I can tell you there's another, let me see, uh, I think around 80 items on my list. Okay, and uh, your, your point is? Okay, exactly? Hold on, hold on. We haven't got to yours yet. Uh, where is it? Okay, uh, here it is. Uh, not quite as long as mine. So let me just read out the key essentials according to Mr. Child, shall I? Okay. Okay, so these were your priority items on the day we moved in. Number right. one, buy coffee machine. Uh-huh. Number two. Buy coffee beans. <laughs> yeah. uh, number three, buy Peroni. That was a beer, obviously. Uh, number four, buy chocolate biscuits. And, of course, you topped it off with number five, buy some Pims. And and your point is what, exactly? <laughs> well, they're not exactly practical items, are they? Look, just because you don't require coffee in order to function doesn't mean that you can neglect the bean on moving in day. Everyone else needs to have decent coffee on tap day one. Everyone else, presumably, uh, that means just you, is it? Well, and any guests that, you know, may have stopped by on the day. We didn't have any guests on moving day. You see, that's where you need to have my level of foresight. We could 
have had guests, in which case they'd have been well catered for in the beverage department. If you remember, that delivery driver stopped by to ask for directions, so actually I was quite right to make sure we uh, we had provisions in. Really? Can you honestly imagine us offering a lost delivery driver a drink? Hello, Mr Driver. Sorry you're lost, but uh, before you go, would you like a class of pins? <laughs> OK, well, alcohol may not have been the most appropriate uh, sort of uh, beverage in that scenario, but... It may have been someone more important. I mean, it could have been the landlord or it could have been the lettings agent, for example. Yeah, both of whom you've tried to kill. Ah, I didn't try and kill either of them. I wish you'd stop saying that. Anyway, why are you making such a big girl's fuss about this kind of being practical business? Well, because, you know, I'm now having to deal with your creative input in the redecoration side. And frankly, your taste and mine are poles apart. Well, I agree with that. That's absolutely true. I actually have taste. No, 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 no. You're getting taste confused with something else. Uh, which is? Which is having no taste whatsoever. <laughs> right. Uh, uh, frankly, I'm not sure how on earth you can say that. You have no concept of the well, meaning of the word taste. Anyway, when it comes to interior design, you're about as useful as mud flaps on a tortoise. <laughs> Where do you get this stuff from? Look, mate, look, there's nothing wrong with my taste. Just because I like things plain and simple doesn't mean I'm tasteless. OK, what about when you volunteered to go and pick up the carpet swatches from the carpet man? Uh, what about it? When we, we quite definitely said we were looking for swatches that were of a biscuity colour, didn't we? Technically, yes. And then you came back with about 20 carpet books none of which had any biscuit-coloured carpets in them. Well, technically they did. I mean, we didn't exactly specify what type of biscuit, did we? What, you think, like, Oreos and Bourbons count as being biscuit-coloured? Oh, yes, technically. Anyway, look, it's not my oh. fault because I'm colour blind. Oh, here we go again. I can't believe you're trotting out that lame duck excuse. Uh, time after time, any time there's a, a fashion faux pas or a stylistic car crash, you wheel out the same old broken record about yeah. it. It not being your fault because you're colourblind. Anyway, I thought colourblind people struggle to tell two colours apart, but you don't seem to be able to tell any colour apart. Well, yeah, but come on, look, some of us are affected more badly than others. Well, OK, why on earth did you volunteer to choose the carpet swatches if you can't tell one colour from another? How did your conversation in the carpet shop go? Oh, I'd like to look at some carpets, please. These grey ones look nice. <laughs> no, no, you're just being ridiculous. <laughs> what did you think when the carpet guy handed you all those swatches that looked exactly the same? <laughs> did you think like, oh, don't worry, mate, I'll just take this grey square one, you can keep all the others, as long as it's, as long as it's fluffy on one side, it'll be fine. Oh, look, you always take things too far, don't you? Come to think of it, uh, I thought you were looking a bit sweaty when our interior designer handed you those, uh, those paint charts and asked you which one you like best for your office. Yeah, well, look, I wasn't in the slightest bit sweaty. I just uh, wasn't that bothered, that's all. But, uh, you know, I considered what the designer had to say. I looked at the paint options and in the end I decided to go with a neutral palette from the Naturals range. In fact, you know, I think she thought it was an inspired choice. Yeah, I recall it had uh, it had quite an evocative name, didn't it? Wasn't it something like, um, oh, what was it? Was it uh, Autumn Wind or uh, Frisky Buttercup? <laughs> I don't know. No, I remember now. It was Brilliant White. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you must have agonised over that decision. Still, very uh, very cutting edge, you know, very out there. Uh, but aren't you worried that it might clash with your office furniture? Oh, but of course, silly me, you don't actually know what colour your office furniture is, do you? <laughs> Look, you can mock my colour blindness all you like. It doesn't detract from the fact that when it comes to interior design and 
anything practical, you are a talent-free zone. What about last week when, due to your bumbling and aptitude, you somehow managed to wrench the kitchen tap off its base and we had a 10-foot plume of water shooting onto the ceiling? Okay, uh, that was just a freak accident. I was simply turning the tap on and it, it came off in my hand. Right, but did you notice that somehow I managed to operate the tap without it coming off in my hand? You know, were you confused because it didn't have any instructions on it? You know, did you think that uh, in order to get to the water underneath, you had to remove the tap first? No, no. Okay, and, and then, then what was what was your response? I seem to remember it was as highly practical as per usual. Oh no, oh no, that was it. It was just highly pitched. You basically started <laughs> crying and called for me to bail you out. Yes, well, that is a. Just a complete exaggeration, isn't it? I simply said, Rich, we seem to have a small problem in the kitchen. And then you came in. And then technically we had two small problems in the kitchen. Oh, very funny. (laughs) Very, very funny. And then do you remember what I said next? Uh, no, what was it? Where's uh, Where's my mummy? <laughs> no, no, after that. <laughs> if you remember, I said, where's the stopcock? And do you remember your response? No. Well, you started frantically opening cupboard doors trying to find one because somehow Mr. Practical had managed to write down the question, where's the stopcock, on his super magical practical moving in list, but then he hadn't bothered to actually get an answer. <laughs> okay, okay. I admit I didn't know where it was. But, you know, then again, I wasn't expecting some complete buffoon to dismantle the kitchen when he was trying to make just a simple cup of tea. So, me being of a very practical disposition, I called the landlord and I got him to come over and turn it off. Meanwhile, you dived under the kitchen sink and attacked it with a hairpin of all things. Look, well, it worked, didn't it? Uh, it's an old Indian trick. You know, if you can't find a stopcock, you can sometimes locate the little valve screws under the sink and turn the water off that way, you know, just with a hairpin. Okay, and without being rude, is there a particular reason that you, you carry hairpins around with you? I mean, do you find them necessary to keep that wafty mane of yours under control? No, I carry them because I work with a complete muppet, you know, who has the capacity to <laughs> randomly to destroy the infrastructure of an entire building in the blink of an eye. Oh, uh, fair enough. Anyway, between us, I think the plan's looking good, and I know the designer is, uh, well... She's really keen to see how your office turns out. <laughs> yeah, as I am. Look, anyway, we didn't come here to talk about interior design. We actually came here to talk about the tendering process for contracts. Absolutely, indeed. So uh, where would you say would be the best place to start? All right, come on then. Let's be sensible. Let's uh, let's talk, uh, first of all, about what, what are we talking about, the importance of tender documents and the tendering process. Th- th- this is one of the key stages in any development process that you're going to do because if you don't get this right uh, your costs can run astray this is all to do with cost and associated with cost is going to be timing and of course again associated with timing is cost so it's all all linked together and many people don't really understand either a the tender process or the importance of the tender process so what i want to go through today is just give some useful steers on just how the tender process works sort of you know the few steps that's involved in it what really needs to go into uh, a tender pack of information that goes goes out and, um, you know, why it has to be of a certain standard and what that certain standard is. And so just want to sort of take people through to give a bit of food for thought on the whole tendering process. Fantastic. So first of all, you know, the tendering process um, is, is actually the process of getting a price off of a contractor to go and build your project. So let's say you're doing a new build, for example. We're going to build three houses on a plot of land that we've got planning for. Forget all the planning, forget all the design. It's the process of actually getting a price off of a contractor 
who says, yeah, I'm going to go and build those three houses for £300,000 fixed price and I'm going to give them back to you. Now, as developers, what we don't want is we don't want any great surprises because we do all of our deal analysis. Uh, you know, we go through all those processes. We, we put all that back up to our uh, funders and uh, they go to their underwriters and they're all basing around this number. And of course, whilst we have contingency, you know, we don't want to go into a project and assume we're going to use all of our contingency up. Contingency is there for those things that we didn't expect. So if you, if you don't have a good tender process, you're very quickly going to go through your contingency. And then if you're not careful, you start eating straight into your profit. And of course, you don't want to have to do that almost expectingly. So a bit more time spent on the tendering process is really important. Okay. So just the sort of quick, simple stages of going through a tender process before you get to appoint someone. Uh, you've got to compile a tender list. So you've actually got to get a series of contractors on that tender list. Now, uh, you, you know, if you're new to development, you're not just going to go and choose those contractors yourself. You're not just going to go out there, oh, I bumped into one at a networking do. They're great. I'm going to put them on my tender list. No, there's horses for courses like anything. You know, there's the right architect for the project. There's the right structural engineer. There's the right planning consultant. And, and equally, there's the right contractor. So the best thing to do is, is really get recommendations off other people. So who would your project manager or perhaps a quantity surveyor recommend? What contractors have they used recently to build, on the example I just mentioned, three houses? You know, So if you've got a contractor that only has ever done refurbishment of maybe an office into, uh, into residential but never built anything new, they're probably not the right contractor. So you want to get some recommendations off your uh, project manager and maybe your architect, maybe your structural engineer. So compile a good list of contractors and you need quite a number because at the end of this process – you want at least three decent prices. Unless you've got three, you've got no comparison because you've got two prices, you can't compare. You don't know which one's high, which one's low. The minute you get three, you know, you've got you've got some comparison. Ideally, you want four or five back, but that's not always possible. And that means that to start off with, you've got to have even more than that on your list because, of course, some people won't actually respond at all, will they? At this stage, yeah, just compiling this list, I'd probably want about... Uh, you know, eight or 10 contractors on my first list are recommendations. And, and that's not going to be that difficult. If you actually talk to a project manager or your architect, they're going to definitely come forward with some names. Then your next processor that is, is gaining their interest in it. But just, just because a project manager said, yeah, I've worked with so-and-so contractors, it doesn't mean to say they're going to be interested in working on your project or in fact giving you a tender price. So now why might they not be? Well, one, they might have too much work on. So, you know, if they've actually got their work blocked out for the whole next year, they're not going to necessarily be looking for more work. So that might be one thing. Perhaps actually they're, they're moving into some slightly bigger projects. So ordinarily they might have done £300,000 type developments, but they're now moving up into the million pound plus. So it might be something they're not interested in. Equally, it could be, in fact, um, and, and this can be the case, is they don't know you. They've never met you. And, of course, we talk about credibility a lot. So you've got to make sure, again, here, you know, whilst you think, well, I'm the client, yeah, you know, these contractors are going to be spending a lot of money, particularly from a cash flow point of view, up front before they get it back from you. So they've got to have credibility, you know, or trust and credibility with you. So, you know, and, and, and if, if they don't want to, to work with you, you want to know that early on so you can actually then get a full list together. So you start with this compiled list. You then gain expressions of interest. And this is something that a project manager would do for you. They send out and say, this is the project. This is the client. This is how we're going to do it. And then, of course, you might get, uh, say, five contractors come back and say, yes, 
we, we, we'd, be, we'd be interested to tender. You don't want to, in, in a smallest project, you don't want to go out to more than five or six because what a lot of contractors will say, well, how many people are tendering? Because it's a lot of work for them. So if you said, well, actually, there's 20, to be a bit ridiculous, well, they've got a one in 20 chance at best to win the project. And, of course, they're going to spend quite a bit of money and time doing this. So they're unlikely to do that. So five or six would be the normal reasonable number to go out with. You've then got to issue those tenders. So there's proper tender documents. I'm going to talk about the tender pack and the documents that you need in a minute. But you've got to issue those out uh, to uh, the contractors and they've got to be comprehensive. And that's a word we're going to come back and discuss in a minute. Of course, then you're uh, after that, you're going to get the contractors send the tenders in. So they're going to send in the price for what they think they're going to do the project for. And then your next stage is to review all of those. Now, it's massively important when you're trying to review tenders is that you're able to, to compare you know, one with the other. So the information that you send out determines the quality of the information you're going to get back. And of course, then you appoint. So you've got to go through this sort of um, sort of four step process before you appoint, you know, compiling your list, gaining the expressions of interest, getting the tenders out, getting them back and reviewing them and then appoint. So that's the sort of basic process that we've got to go through, first of all. Fantastic. And then I guess after that, uh, one of the, the key considerations then is is what you actually put in the uh, the tender information pack, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I think the um, I mean the tender information pack is the pack of information, and it's not just drawings, but it's all the information that goes out to the contractors for them to price. Now, uh, the the stages that we go through and we talk about this and people need to be familiar, if you're not as a new designer familiar with this, it's something that you want to get familiar with, is the RIBA stages of work, which is the Royal Institute of British Architects. It's a standard process, stage process that all design professionals go through to get uh, a project ultimately drawn up ready for construction. And there is a stage that we go through. I mean, there's seven uh, basic stages in this as we go through, and there is uh, an ultimate final stage which is in use. But the stages we go through is, is about sort of definition, preparation of a project brief. It's then called concept design, develop design, technical design, construction, handover. Now, the concept and develop design is at the end of that, so the project's moved on a fair way, is when we go out to tender. So we don't just go out to tender... Uh, what one might call a, a concept sort of brief stage. So you need a fair bit of detailed information because what you're asking a contractor to do is price very accurately what it is that you want them to build. So if you go out on you know fairly brief information, as the sort of stage would define, uh, they're only pricing on that brief information. And when you actually then get your design team to draw up in detail, so let's say you had a set of stairs and you just said, yeah, there's a set of stairs there, uh, but actually, when you draw it up in detail, uh, it's, it's not timber. You want those made out of concrete. Well, if the contractor wasn't told whether it was timber or concrete, how was he able to price it? One contractor might say, well, I priced timber, or I assumed it was concrete, says the other one. So you can't compare. And of course, if they all assumed it was timber, but you wanted concrete, there's going to be an extra that creeps in. So you've got to have a fair bit of detail on the drawings. And this uh, RIBA stages define the extent of detail that you need. And in okay. terms of the sort of pack of information, uh, so drawings, yes, absolutely. You need a set of drawings from each design discipline, which might just be an architect and a structural engineer. 
Uh, on a bigger project, you could have uh, what's called a mechanical and electrical consultant. So they would be the people that would be specifying the, the heating system and the electrical system. On smaller projects, you wouldn't necessarily have that consultant on board. So you'd have at least the structural engineer and the architect pretty much on every project. And they need to have a set of drawings um, which define exactly what you want the contractor to build. Now, you can, you know, you can change your mind, but, uh, you know, accept that if you change your mind, there might be a change of cost. With those drawings needs to go a full set of specification of those materials. So, as I say, it can't just be there's a drawing showing a staircase. The staircase is made of what? What's the balustrade made of? Is it glass? Is it just timber? You know, is it timber painted or is it oak? You know, so there's a whole, as you can see, there's quite a lot of definition that would have to go into the specification. Now, on smaller projects, quite often that just goes on the drawings. So you can have a, a set of architect's drawings and, and a very comprehensive set of notes on there that actually, you know, clarifies the absolute specification of all of these individual items. So <clears throat> the really important uh, bit of information is the uh, the tender pack the tender drawings and the tender specification from the architect and structural engineer that's got to go together. Now, along uh, with that, and I'm going to talk about tender drawings just a little bit more in a minute, but along with that, in terms of what's got to go in the tender pack, is is a load of uh, information around the contract terms. So, you know, what is the type of contract you're going to use? Now, uh, one of the uh, the main contracts in the, in the industry is uh, the JCT contract, which is the Joint Contract Tribunal. Uh, and that's a standard form of contract that is used to uh, basically, you know, put together a contractor and a client and tie them up legally together in some form of arrangement. So you need to demonstrate to the contractor what sort of arrangement you want them to sign up to. So now contractors will know what the JCT contract is. And there's a number of these contracts. So you might specify a certain one and your project manager would do that for you. Because if you didn't, how do they know what contract terms they're going to sign up to? Of course, these contract terms could be including their payment terms. Are they getting paid 14 days after they put an invoice in? 30 days? What about retention? Retention is a thing where you normally hold back either sort of 25 uh, 5% off the contractor's invoices just in case there's any remedial works to come back for. And how long are they held for? Normally, it's sort of six months after a project, but it could be three months. So there's lots of terms that you have to make sure are in the contract. Now, um, you know, insurance is really important in, in terms of insuring the, the project and the contractor has to insure the project. Now, you've got to specify to your contractor what it is you need him to insure for. So he covers that off. So all of those things need to go in as a comprehensive sort of contract terms. The other thing which, which people often perhaps forget in there is, is the sort of uh, format on pricing when it comes back. So when a, a project manager puts a contract documentation together, they will normally ask for a contractor to send their pricing back in a certain format because, you know, you might get one contractor comes back with a lump sum. You might get another contractor breaks it down into five phases, another contractor who breaks it down into seven subphases, all with six subphases underneath that. Well, how can you possibly compare how they work together. So what a good project manager would normally do would be to put a pricing format into the documents. So when the information comes back, it comes back in a format where they can actually understand it. Sort of comparing apples with apples, you know, rather than apples with pears. We have a list. So if it was for the new build houses, we have a list for the, the under you know, below ground works, the foundations and the drainage. 
and we can compare whether one contractor's put, say, 50,000 against that and another's put 10,000. Well, if two contractors have put sort of 40 or 50,000 and another one's put 10, one can suspect that one of them's probably got something wrong somewhere. Exactly. Yeah. But that's quite a common, uh, I think, certainly I've had that experience where you've got quotes in and you then wish you'd asked them additional questions or been more prescriptive at the start because you can't see exactly... Uh, you can see the prices are different, but you can't really explain why. So having it at a more granular level, you can then see, ah, they, they've either missed the point, misinterpreted it, or they're just simply more expensive on that specific issue, and that yeah. enables you to dr- and that sort of drill down. I think if, you know, if they're more expensive, that, that's fine, as long as you understand it. The problem is, if a contractor... Uh, is, is is significantly out. So you had something which was say fifty thousand, another one had put ten. You know, but everyone else is up at the fifty level. The problem will come even if you think you think oh, okay, I've got away with that. They've underpriced it. That'll come back somewhere because actually, if your drawings weren't sufficiently detailed or your specification wasn't sufficiently detailed, and they've interpreted it wrong and underpriced it, it'll come back in a claim. Yeah. And if you're, and unless your uh, your design team's drawings and information that's put together is fully coordinated and you know uh, very detailed in the specification, the likelihood is you'll get a claim on that. So it's better, you know, don't try and get away with that. It's better to flush it out and say to the contractor, okay, look, you're you're on this particular item, the groundworks, the foundations, you're you're significantly out. Can you tell me what you've included? And it could be that the project manager asks for further breakdown from all the contractors on that area to compare it a bit further. You might get the contractor say, yeah, that, yeah, that's just for the drainage. Sorry, I didn't allow for foundations. Okay, I better allow. Now, I'm not saying you want to encourage additional money to keep coming to the contract, but there's no point entering a contract that you know fundamentally is wrong uh, and you think you've got one over on the contractor because, uh, you know, if your contractor has made a mistake, and let's say they made a genuine mistake and you still think that contractually, that's okay, I've got them sewn up, they can't claim any extras. You've now got a contractor who's immediately, right at the beginning of the job in the ground on this example, has just realised they've lost £40,000. So what's their attitude towards this project? Mm. You know, they want to now... Claw back. Claw back. Or they just aren't happy with the project, they don't have any interest, because that's human nature. So... You know, a best project is win-win. Pay a fair price for a fair, a fair job. And, and if you think you're going to get away with something, you won't. It will come back and bite you. So this uh, tender pack, you know, this uh, pricing format is really, really important. And the other thing which has to go into this is the tender conditions and dates. Because what you would normally do is you'd enable the contractors to come to site and have a look around. You know, you'd show them around, you'd get to answer any questions they have with your design team present, and you walk them all around the site. And, of course, you then have certain conditions about when you need the information back and what else you need back. So you might say they've got to be back on the so-and-so of July. Well, that's when you need them back. You know, you you can't have three contractors in and wait for the other two because you're now stalling the whole thing because, oh, well, you never told us what the date was. So dates are really, really important. And what else they have to submit. So, you know, we talked about insurances. Quite often the project manager will say, okay, what I want in your tender submission is actually I want to see sight of your insurances, Mr. Contractor, to see that you have the right value insurance in place. You might actually be saying, I'd like to see a copy of your program for the project. So how many how many weeks or months do you expect mm-hmm. it to take? Because, again, yep. if you've got one contractor saying, yeah, I can do this for £300,000, it's going to take me 18 months, and you've got another contractor that says, I can do it for 310000 but I can do it in 12 months. 
Well, they, they potentially are more appealing, providing your project manager can assess that and can see, yeah, they can definitely do it in that time. So if you need a program back, you want to ask for that information. Yeah. You might also want to know, and I think this is really important, what other projects the contractor's got on, you know, what other tenders they've accepted, and what's their turnover currently and how much have they secured for the future year. A lot of people never ask this, because, but I think it's really important. If you had a, a £300,000 project, for instance, and you had a contractor who only ever turns over 400000 you are almost taking the whole of his year's turnover. That, in my opinion, is too big a proportion. That's quite dangerous, isn't it? That's quite dangerous, yeah, because he probably won't better cater for the cash flow on one project in that way. Now, I think, you know, 20 to 25% is a really nice number because then you're about a quarter of someone's turnover. Yeah. You're really important to them, but they're probably big enough to cater for it. Yeah. So, so it's, a, it's a balance. There's a balance, yeah. yeah. You've got some clout. So if you've got a £300,000 project and a contractor's got a, a 1.2 million turnover, I'd go, yeah, that's quite good because yeah. I'm important to them. But of course, this other question that I said needs to come in is how much work have you secured for the current year? Because if the contractor says, um, yeah, my turnover is 1.2 million and I've actually secured 1.2 million, now that you know that the likelihood is that he's going to have to employ as a contractor all new staff and new subcontractors to take on your project, which could be uh, people that are, or, uh, that are unknown to him, subcontractors yeah. that are unknown. And there's a risk there, isn't there? There's another risk. Uh, and again, equally, if you take it to the extreme, if you had a £30 million company and yours was a £300,000 project, you don't feature very highly on their list of priorities. Back of the queue, yeah. You're often at the back of the queue. So those uh, those bits of information all need to come out in the tender information pack. And, of course, the great thing is a good project manager will put all that together for you. Now, if I can just then sort of touch on the, 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 the drawings front uh, that I said earlier and the fact they need to be coordinated. I, I mean, you know, I've been doing this for 35 years and I still... It frustrates me to see this goes wrong all the time, that you get uh, developers sending out a pack of drawings uh, for a contractor to price, and you've got a set of architects' drawings, you've got a set of structural engineers, the two main disciplines, and they are not coordinated. So you've got a, a structural engineer who shows three columns in a row, yet the architect only shows two, nice. and where the third column is, there's a staircase or a light well. Now, clearly, you are opening yourself up to all sorts of claims, because... The contractor is going to price, you know, either the architect's drawings or the structural engineer's drawings. Now, I don't know which one's right, but one of those is obviously clearly wrong. So you're now gambling that he prices the right one. But, of course, he's priced the tender information that you sent him. And the whole process, remember I said the tender process was uh, after you've uh, issued the tenders, you reviewed them, you appoint. You are appointing a contractor based on the tender drawings. So when you send him the construction drawings... And often they then are coordinated because they have to mm-hmm. be. You know, you're now chancing it. Well, which one did he price off of and which is the latest choice? And you're potentially going to get a claim come through. And I think that's one of the massive risks here with getting this whole issue wrong, which is that when somebody's competing to win your business um, and they've got a comprehensive brief, everything's in it. It's nicely specced out. They know what, what they've got to do and they're going to give you a keen price. Uh, one assumes. And once they've won the contract, however, the boot kind of, you know, the, the balance of power shifts effectively, yeah. doesn't it? Because they're now on site, they've got the job, they're midway through it. And then all of a sudden, it becomes clear that the tender documentation wasn't complete. There was an error or there was an omission. And now you need to ask them to do some more work. 
Well, that's not a tender process. That's not a competitive environment. No. That's pretty much down to him to tell you how much he wants to charge for it. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, you know, there, there, there are, you know, loosely rules of contact or conduct that one wants to work under. The, uh, you know, they can't charge you a ridiculous price for something because your project manager wouldn't accept it. So there has to be reasonable levels. But of course, you're absolutely right. You're not in a strong position to negotiate because you, if the contractor says, well, yeah, okay, but that's my hourly rate. I know it's it's the it's the highest compared to anyone else, but that's what I charge for remedial works. You can't get another contractor in then because no, you're on exactly. site. And also, to your point earlier, that if if there have been a few bumps in the road earlier on that the the, uh, the contractors had to absorb, it's things like that that represent his chance to kind of claw back some uh, some some income effectively from the project. Yeah, and that's perfectly reasonable. That's a commercial approach, really. And so, you know, you've got to get these coordinated set of drawings. And I think the thing there perhaps is sometimes time. Just spend a bit of time. We we are impatient as developers because that's what we are entrepreneurs. We want to get out. We want to get it done. Time is money. Yeah, absolutely. But just maybe listen to your project manager. Listen to your design team. You know, you've got you've got those two ears and you've got the one mouth. Just use them in that proportion sometimes and think, well, okay, I ought to listen to the architect. He, say, he says that he needs another week before we go out to tender. I'd much rather wait another week, although I'm frustrated and although the contractors are saying, well, hang on, where's the tender? Where's the tender? And actually get it properly coordinated because then you stand yourself a much better chance of getting the right information back and having less claims on site. You're only going to spend more money and more time later on at the back of the project. And the same applies to all the contract documentation. You know, there can't be any gaps in any of that contract documentation because that's what you're signing them up for. Of course, yeah. If you don't clarify that there's a retention process, you can't ask for it afterwards because that's unreasonable. You know, so the whole scope of the project, the contract terms, the coordinated information has all got to be put together, and that's massively important. I think the other thing which one ought to listen to, and we don't do this enough as developers, is we often don't give a contractor enough time to price. So a contractor could price a project in 24 hours for you, but it would be a bit of a finger in the air and a lump sum. And what they would do is price in risk. And you don't want a contractor to price risk you know, we've talked before about stripping out contracts and minimising risk. Well, the same here. A good quality tender document will minimise the risk that a contractor has to price and a decent timescale for a contractor to tender will further minimise the amount of risk that they have to price because Absolutely. they generally will, will put out to all of their subcontractors the individual elements, the electrical elements, the plumbing elements, the foundations, the roofs, and they've got to get it back. Well, all these people are busy. So what will happen, it goes down a chain. And if the roofing contractor that they've asked for a price from uh, is, is a little busy uh, and they just said, well, I need it back in, in two days, then ultimately uh, he's going to estimate and perhaps overestimate the price in risk to make sure he, he or she's covered before they send the price into the main contractor. And then they'll probably think, well, hang on a minute, I better put a bit on top of that and you get risk priced in. So if a contractor's asked for more time, and generally you'll find that it's not just one contractor, it's normally two or three of them ask for a bit of an extension, give them a little bit more time to go through. So I think, you know, to sort of sum up on this, this sort of tender documentation, tender process, take the lead from your project manager, listen to your design team of how much time they need, you know, get involved early to get this tender list together, listen to the contractor in the terms of the timescale he needs, but almost certainly don't go out to tender until you're ready. You know, we, we describe these things as going through gateways. The RIBA process is to go through these various gateways. 
and going from concept develop design, which is the point you tender, to technical, which is when you start doing all the construction drawings and you appoint a contractor, you need to make sure you're going through that gateway when you're absolutely confident that you've got this tender going out with all the right quality information. Fantastic. Well, you want that apples and apples comparison, don't you? Absolutely. Otherwise, you are struggling. Fantastic. Richie, that's brilliant. Thank you so much. I'm afraid that's all we've got time for in this episode. Join us again next time when we'll be giving you the inside track on yet another part of the property world. In the meantime, please feel free to check out our other episodes. And of course, you can visit our website, which is at propertyceo.co.uk. But until next time, goodbye from us both. Goodbye.